Blog Talk Radio. Tonight on RSG One Mike, we have film director and former Trojan, Bob DeMars, who will talk about his hard-hitting documentary, The Business of Amateurs. It's about to go down tonight. This thing right here is for my people's history. Yes, yes, today. Yes, yes, today. You know, as we start this show, this one might. Here we There is a pause. Throughout the stadium, as this man sounds like he just coughed up a lung. Just looking around, the jumbotron shows and pans the cheerleaders, and as it goes down each cheerleader's face, each one breaks up into laughter, which at this particular time destroys half the stadium. The other half is still trying to figure out what the hell just happened. Does this guy need? Uh, CPR or something, and at that, that particular time, I lost it. Divine drug. Yes, yes, yes. Today, this one mic. Phoenix is another place. They got a great uh, training staff. I mean, they they were able to breathe life back into Shaq. And you can do that. You know, people talk a lot about their training staff. Yes, yes. Today. You know, as we start this show, this one mic. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? That's how I feel tonight. I'm excited about our one mic. Uh, This is kind of a special edition. Normally I'll have my sidekick uh, on here, Hank Davis. Uh, This is Devon Wilson uh, here with RSG. One mic. Uh, this is our show. We go in depth. We'll go deep into issues. Normally, Hank and I will push an issue deep, uh, or there'll be times when, uh, like we did with Dr. Richard McGregory, when we're talking about uh, the baller effect. If you haven't had a chance to talk about hear that discussion that we had about the ball family and the impact and the effect, uh, please go to iTunes, uh, subscribe to Real Sports Guys uh, on iTunes, and, and and listen to that amongst all the other. Um, uh, uh, great podcast we have in our portfolio. But this is where we're going deep. This is a little different than our big show where you hear with myself and Phil um, and, and Marcus, where that show is kind of like the uh, barbershop sum- seminar. You know, it's like faculty members in the barbershop at that effect, and you never know where that discussion is going. And we'll have several different things we'll talk about in that format. Uh, we also have uh, another show that Marcus and Sekou have just been uh, it's a hidden gem uh, if you have a check, uh, chance to check it out, uh, uh, where it's uh, the hustle and flow with this intersection between hip-hop and sports. And Sekou, if you have a chance to go to realsportsguys.com and check out his list every year, um, you know, this is this is a guy who's brilliant. I mean, he's a, a, a faculty member at uh, UT. He's, he's really in tune. He's from New York City. He loves sports and has his great uh, – um, list that he does every year as he's trying to reflect on the year in hip-hop and, and does some great analysis. Uh, but they, they normally will talk about intersection of hip-hop and sports. And obviously, you know, Hank is uh, Davis uh, with Inside the Park, you know, is taking Inside the Park beyond 
the metrics and the analytics. He's bringing the soul back into baseball. And, uh, and so we have a lot of different things, but on one mic, this is where we try to set what the issue. We try to really analyze it, take it deep, uh, and, and, and look at it, turn it up upside down, and, and uh, think about possible solutions to whatever that issue may be. And tonight we just we have a great guest we're going to have on with us tonight. Um, I had a chance to be on a panel with him uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, as you know, on our platform, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, intercollegiate athletics. Um, uh, all of us uh, play college sports. We have a love for college sports. Um, but, you know, like everything that you love, you want it to be better. Um, you want to address some of the health issues related to it. Um, and so Bob and I sat on a panel uh, uh, with Chris Borland, uh, former uh, 49er and Badger and and uh, who I always, every time I see him, I call him the next president, just a caring, bright, intelligent uh, person who has really, he's been looking at kind of the health and wellness issues, looking at head injuries and looking at other interventions and, and thinking about the safety of the game. And I think Bob will talk a lot about that as well. Uh, but this is big business. And so, you know, we owe it uh, as part of our platform and, and the fact that um, all of us who have been uh, who are linked to this RC platform, we all have a foot in education in some way, or or have had a foot in education. And so, um, you know, either our mentors, advisors, or the students we work with, or other folks we know in the community will hold us accountable to be exploring these issues. And even some of our close colleagues who are in intercollegiate athletics, who we have great relationships with, they know where most of us come from, and that we're going to be pushing these issues. And I and I think. Uh, Bob is a great example of someone who has a lot of passion for um, intercollegiate athletics. You know, he's had a great experience, but he's also seen uh, what, how it's been devastating to people close to him and, uh, and what it does when we don't really take care of these athletes who give people so much joy uh, on uh, these weekend days and Friday nights and Thursday nights all around the country. Um, and, and we want to make sure that we, we explore these issues. We've talked about these issues with people like Alan Sack, um, who is a, 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 a faculty member who has been leading this charge and uh, along with others around kind of organizing faculty and staff. And Alan's perspective has always been around the educational piece. I think he understands all the other things that Bob will talk about and that Chris will talk about. But I think Alan is one of those few faculty members because I've always said this, that a lot of the power around this stuff does sit with the faculty. <laughs> um, if you understand how uh, institutions are structured in the role of shared governance, faculty do have a voice. And uh, he's been organizing with other faculty around making sure that student athletes get what they came from, for, that, that they get the kind of educational experience that we're promising to all undergraduates. And uh, that's something that uh, Bob and I uh, will talk about, because we had a moment in our panel where uh, a number of great people sitting there asked a lot of good questions about um, what do we do, how do we label them, and it was a moment where I just spoke up as someone who is in, in, um, in uh, academic affairs and administration um, who, who looks at this from another angle, um, spoke to, um, and I think it was kind of, I, I could see some of the reactions when I, when I said what I said um, related to this, and um, and in some ways, universities have accountability um, because these are undergraduates. And so I look forward to uh, exploring that uh, uh, with Bob as well. 
Uh, but I also play that opening, Can You Dig It?, because uh, all the folks in the Bay Area are probably feeling good about themselves. And so even though we're going to a deep uh, topic uh, around this issue, I, I, you know I can't you know, let this go by. I've been taking hits on our little uh, text message group. You know, uh, uh, one of our contributors, y'all know him as the Hammer, uh, Carl Hampton, you know, I, I call him part of the Chicago Mafia. You can't say nothing about Michael Jordan. Hampton's going to come back. You know, you know he's Stanford-educated, UW law degree from uh, Madison, you know, great law school. And so, you know, but th- on this issue, he loses his mind. There's no analytics to it. He just is just emotional. His Chicago, the South Side Chicago, this comes out. And so, you know, you had the group that was rooting for uh, for you had the you have the MJ I call Chicago Mafia group. Then you had what we call. Uh, the, the, the Kobe riders because they mad at Kobe not in the conversation. So you got the folks from LA hating. And so, and then on the other side, you got people who are, you know, supporting LeBron for his journey. Um, uh, and you got people who have been critical of KD, but uh, I got to say this, Kevin Durant, whatever you want to say about the decision. And I said this about LeBron when he, uh, uh, he went to Miami and LeBron's situation is totally different than Kevin's. You got to, I think LeBron did a really good job of, of articulating the differences and now whether or not that's important or not to people, but there are some differences. Um, but you, you, you have to, and I, and I went back on game changer on this and he got, he pushed back on me that KD was the difference in this series that he wasn't just here riding along that he was, the difference they're making. And so I got, you know, people like they're, they're up 3-1 last year and this team could have, nah, but LeBron just woke up. LeBron woke up last year. He was kind of asleep, kind of like he was waking up this year. And once he woke up and he got uh, uh, Kevin and all these guys integrated, they started making their run. And then people forget in the first title they won, LeBron played them without Kevin Love and Kyrie. You know, you know people want to talk about, uh, 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 Draymond missing uh, game five last year. I mean, LeBron was basically playing in his first year uh, uh, without Kevin or Kyrie in the finals. And last year he came in uh, and made it there after they made a coaching change at a time when you never make a coaching change. Um, and the only thing equivalent that I can, I can think of this is when, and this wasn't even a coach, was when the Pistons decided to move away and traded Adrian Dantley uh, uh, away uh, was was probably to bring in Mark Aguirre in, in terms of a team that was making a championship run and then making a, a major change in doing it. So I think, you know, obviously Golden State overcame the fact that coach wasn't there. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I love the way Kevin played down the stretch. I love the way he asserted himself. Uh, he took the big moments. Um, he was, you know, he had LeBron in the skinny post. Uh, knocking it down, he rebounded, he did all the things. So it's going to be interesting how the narrative evolves um, because he definitely um, was leading the charge. I mean, he scored uh, over 30 in every game. I mean, he wakes out of bed with 25. You know, he was doing work. Uh, But then you have LeBron on the other side who averaged a triple-double in the finals. Incredible stuff. Incredible energy. Um, I'm so glad that we were able to do it. I wish we would have had like a game six, game seven scenario with this. Uh, but, you know, congratulations to the folks in the Bay area. Uh, you know, I saw E40 and Stoop there, you know, they was getting down. So, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the next choice, uh, choices remix, you know, because you got to put 
you got to put you got to put uh, uh, Durant in the mix now, you know. So they they got to come up with something, you know, there. But uh, you know, the Bay Area is fuzzy. And the one thing I can say, I had a chance to watch a playoff game in the Bay Area uh, when uh, Mark Jackson was coaching them, and they were playing against the Lakers. I think uh, I think it was either Lakers or the Clippers. I think the Clippers actually. Um, and uh, that is a great place to watch a game in Oakland. Uh, we were out there for a meeting, and uh, the energy and the people are great. So, you know, I can't get mad at them. Uh, I, I, I love that. But, you know, I'm Midwest strong, so, you know, I'm going to rock with mine. I got, I got Cleveland. I'm going to be Midwest strong. Now, the Chicago Cats, we're going to have to debate that one. You know, I'm, I'm a bad boy for life, so, you know, I'm, you know uh, I, don't, I don't leave anything turned. You know, I'm down with the Pistons. You know, that's kind of how I rock. And I'm, I'm with Cleveland until the Pistons get back to where they need to be. So, and I'm still, I'm always rooting for my Pistons. Uh, once they get going, you know, LeBron might not get any more love, but you know, he's a Midwest guy, uh, and I'm going, I'm going, I'm going to rock with him. You listen to RSG One Mike, uh, uh, where we go deep again. We go deep uh, into this. We we uh, are focused on issues um, here. Um, all our callers and hosts and guests are brought to you uh, by uh, Carbon World Health, your complete solution for fitness, health, and beauty. Go to CarbonWorldHealth.com to connect with Dr. Nestor Rodriguez and his staff to learn more about lifestyle medicine. Tell them that the Real Sports Guys sent you. Definitely follow us and like us at RealSportsGuys.com. You can get me at RSGDWills, D-W-I-L-S, uh, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Snapchat, on Facebook. I love to engage with people. I post all kinds of things. Uh, you can get RSG, uh, the Game Changer, if you want to help with the Game Changer on Twitter. Uh, he'll, he'll, he'll hit you up. He'll go back. You better come with your game or, you know, he's going to bring out the dog on you. He will bring that dog out on you. So don't, don't, don't come at him soft. Uh, we got RSG, Justin Page on there, too, so you can get him on Twitter, you know, Justin the same way, you know. Justin based down there in ATL, so he he'll 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 come at you as well. So if you're gonna come, don't come, don't come with that, you know, don't come like you run across the middle tippy toeing, because you will get depleted uh messing with him. But we love to get the energy, get the debates, get to we're trying to pick it up. And we know we love the fact that y'all are part of the resistance. Y'all here, y'all hanging with us. Um and uh like we said, we're trying to collect we're trying to co- collect one family member at a time, you know, and uh, it's good to that some of the people from our home space has been rocking with us. Um, but, you know, I love it when I, you know, I run into somebody like, okay, hey, I've been checking you out. Or, you know, somebody will hit you up on Facebook or whatever and appreciate what you're doing or encourage you. You know, you know that's the thing about dreams. You know, you have to, you know, it's, it's good to be fueled when people are behind you. You know, we're trying to do this. You know, this started with a text message to a group of, a group of fellas, and we've been rocking hard since 2010. So, this is Real Sports Guys, one mic. You got it with D. Wills. And tonight, as I said, we're going to be talking to Bob DeMars, you know, former USC Trojan, uh, played under Pete Carroll, um, now uh, film director, uh, his first major major film uh, or documentary uh, is the, the Business uh, uh, of Amateurs. And, I mean, uh, when, when um, and I have to think uh, – a really good person who's, uh, uh, you know, in some ways uh, a mentor, uh, Bob Wynn, who is uh, uh, who has Pro Squared, which he's been focused on this intersection between business and sports. And Bob has been doing some great lunches and putting some events together and just 
creating space for these dialogues. And Bob, you know, let me know he was going to be doing the panel. And, and uh, we talked a little about, you know, obviously uh, Real Sports Guys was going to do a collaboration with them. And I want to shout out to, to, to them and uh, also to uh, Carbon World Health, who also uh, was part of that collaboration, Dr. Nestor Rodriguez, who was also on the panel. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez played soccer at Yale. So we had a lot of different perspectives. You had myself coming from a small college perspective. In some ways, there's some similarities in those small colleges. I think we get this such a big college, kind of big university phenomenon. But for those of us who, you know, especially when you look at the state of Wisconsin and their uh, university system schools, uh, those schools are like the SEC of Division Three football. And uh, if you've been watching the National Division Three championship, uh, University of Wisconsin Whitewater has been in there all the time. They like they like almost like they were like almost like the Alabama of uh, of, uh, of uh, Division Three football. And uh, there's a reason why. And uh, it's uh, the you know the, the number one Division One program in the state of Wisconsin is obviously the Badgers. And then after that, for football side, it, it all becomes mostly Division Three. And so. Um, and some of the similar things you might see in those Division One programs, and some of these highly powered Division Three and Division Two schools, small, you see some of that mentality because everybody thinks they gonna make it. Everybody thinks they're the next Don Beebe. Everybody thinks they're the next uh, what's my guy Jackson went to Co College. Everybody thinks they're that next person. So some of these dynamics that we think only exist at the Alabamas or only exist at the USC's are happening in these small college environments. And so it was good to have that perspective as well as, you know, someone like uh, Dr. Ray Grievous who's at Yale, and we don't often think about the Ivy League schools because they don't offer the, uh, uh, the, you know, the athletic scholarships, but they offer a lot, and those football experiences are very much high-powered football experiences. So to be able to do that, Bob kind of set this thing up, and then he had me do it. And I remember he, he said to me, he said, you can check it out on Amazon, so I was just about to go to sleep, I, and I had my phone, this thing about, like, iPhone, I had, like, a 7 Plus. So I turned the thing on, and the next thing you know, uh, I'm watching this film, and I could feel myself getting emotional because it was – I had never really seen an experience like this before in the way it was being depicted, and it was so so much of a personal journey. Um, and so, you know, if you get if you get intrigued by what you hear with this discussion – I would encourage you to go view the documentary. I think, you know, Bob, and he'll talk about this, was trying to capture a lot uh, as part of this experience. Uh, he was tackling a lot of important issues, but the personal stories and journeys that were depicted as part of that, and particularly as it related to him, I think make this thing a very powerful kind of experience for folks to, to really understand what the personal impact is of folks who are parts of these programs that we cheer and watch every Saturday. Uh, as someone from Ann Arbor, Michigan, I grew up in the big house. And I grew up, you, you learned Hell to the Victors when you, was, when you were like, you know, third grade. You already knew it, you know. And so, you know, uh, it's one of those things that becomes part of your DNA and you love the experience. And I can think about all the great players like, you know, Chris Carter, who, uh, 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 not, I mean, um, Anthony Carter, who played, uh, I got a Cloud State guy, Anthony Carter, who played at Michigan, who was electrifying, uh, who I grew up with, you know, Harbaugh when he was uh, quarterback at Michigan. Um, and, you know, all these people who are um, important parts of our youth experience, but we don't understand what's happening behind the scenes. So you listen to one mic, 
Uh, like I said, this is D. Wilson. I'm, I'm doing a solo. Uh, we're about to bring in a little bit uh, our guest, uh, Bob DeMars, who is the director and, you know, former Trojan, uh, onto the air uh, to, uh, to, to, to just share with us and talk through the experience. I hope you enjoy the journey, um, and uh, we'll get to you after this message. Hi, this is Bob DeMars, director of the Business of Amateurs and former USC football player. You're listening to The Real Sports Guys. These guys talk real sports, and they keep it real. So keep listening. Shout out, shout out to DJ Slick, my guy, for dropping the sounds for us. Yes, you're listening to One Mike, uh, RSG, One Mike. This is D. Wills. As I said, you know, uh, uh, with One Mike, we go deep with issues, and this is something that I've been trying to work on for a long time and uh, very excited that um, uh, we would be able to, um, you know, uh, have this person on with us to talk about his documentary. You know, ever since I sat on the panel with him, and uh, uh, really excited to have this conversation because I think it's very important. Um, and I, I think, you know, as someone who's lived it, um, someone who's been connected with it, um, to have someone like uh, uh, Bob on with us would be, is, a, 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 you know, a, a credible opportunity. So, hey, Bob, how are you doing? Welcome. Good. Thanks for having me on the show, man. Man, uh, first of all, it was just a pleasure to be on the panel with you uh, in Madison, man, and, um you know, just listening to you and your story and um, just kind of how this project came about, um, you know, for someone who's been, you know, doing this show, and this has been like a, one of the core issues we talked about, it was just refreshing. Um, and as I was saying, uh, even before I brought you on an introduction, was that um, when I watched it, and I watched it late at night, it was like, it had to be around one in the morning after uh, Bob Wins said, you got to see this. And uh, I just kind of felt myself getting emotional. Uh, about it because it, it was just so hard hitting for me. Um, and, um, you know, uh, and obviously one of our other panelists, Chris Borland, is very passionate about this, and, and it kind of brought back some of the conversations I've, I've had with Chris around some of these issues. And so I, I just want to start out by saying, you, you know, you did a great you, you did a great job with it. And so I just want to say that uh, as someone hey, who's been right, Thank you. Um, no, I really I, I like, I appreciate that. I mean, that's the thing about documentaries is, you know, a lot of people think you're out there trying to make money when you make a film like this, but you're really trying to make a difference and um, trying to, you know, get people educated on some of these issues is a difficult thing because films are something we can digest and something that, you know, we can receive rather than read the 50 reports and the 50 books that are out there. And I wanted to make something that the public could edu could get educated on because we all love college sports. It's a part of our daily lives. It's, a, it's an ubiquitous feature that isn't going anywhere. And uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, challenging the system a little bit to make it better. And, and I'm, I'm glad you're doing it as well as uh, you have my guy, R Ramogi Human, in there. And, you know, you, we, we can't catch Ramogi anymore, but uh, I'm glad I was able <laughs> to see him on, uh, 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 with all the work he's doing. And uh, I loved it. I like to start out um, because, you know, a lot of times, you know, I know you do interviews, people get right into the – you know, the, the project and everything else. But I, I like to start out with just your journey in sports because obviously uh, you, uh, athletics played an important part of your life and your development. Uh, and, you, and you probably, I don't know how many other sports you played as you, in, in your youth. And then you obviously uh, excelled in football uh, to be able to 
Can you talk a little bit about your journey and, and, and the benefits you got out of that experience in sport? Yeah, you know, I, it's funny. I grew up playing soccer and basketball like, you know, most kids, you know, did a little little league. I really didn't play football growing up. Uh, my dad played football at a school called Cal Lutheran, which is a Division three school, and, um, you know, he's kind of one of those hometown heroes. And he had, you know, knee surgery on both of his knees, and he didn't want me to deal with you know, some of the physical obstacles that he had later on in life. And so he didn't really, he never really pushed me towards football and I never really gravitated towards it. And all of a sudden in freshman year, the football coach called me in my house because, um, you know, kind of a smart move. He called the PE coaches of a middle school and said, who were the leaders and who were the best athletes? And um, hmm. my name came up and I was flattered by that. So I said, okay, I'll go check it out. And uh, I was a tight end as a freshman and, I mean, I really didn't know the game. I mean, I would come off the ball sometimes, like, two seconds before the play ended because I didn't want to be off sides. I didn't understand that, like, the snap count was an advantage, you know. And uh, um, that coach, you know, the varsity coach stepped down, and that, that coach became uh, the varsity coach. And I was one of those guys that my dad always said, hey, if you get yelled at, you just look the coach in the eye. And there was something about that, Um that earned me the respect of the coach. And I, all of a sudden I was varsity. I, I don't, I wasn't a standout by any means. And, but I was a varsity player going both ways, um, you know, in the city section of LA. And uh, I got just brutalized. I mean, I was six three, one sixty five, 165 playing linebacker and left tackle and fullback. And, um, and the, you know, this was right after the riots and there was actually a lot of racial animosity. And um, I mean, I was one of the few white guys on my team and we were playing schools like Silmar where, um, there weren't any white mm-hmm. guys, and so, you know, it, it's it's funny. You know, white people don't experience racism the same way that black people do because they experience it their whole lives. But for you know three hours, I, I experienced some of it, <laughs> some of those games, and uh, you know, and in hindsight, I I understood it. You know, especially looking at the history of how we kind of arrived at that, and you know, it, it almost made me not want to play anymore because it was it was so brutalizing. And to you know, half of my tackles were because they tripped over my face mask. You know. And uh, the school at Westlake, all they knew that I was the captain of the varsity team as a sophomore. They didn't, and then I went both ways. They didn't know that I was getting destroyed by most of the guys on the field. And when I transferred, um, you know, like I said, I was really young and, and a novice to the game and understanding the education side of, you know, what happens on the field and why plays are called. And um, they just told me that if the center goes to the left, you rip to the left, and if he goes to the right, you rip to the right, and if he comes in, you take him on. And it looked like I was reading plays at an incredibly fast speed. And nobody understood that I was keying the center the entire time, that I wasn't actually reading the play. I was keying one guy. Um, and we were in a run league. So all of a sudden, I had like 135 tackles as a junior. Um, you know, I, I got a little bit bigger. I grew into my size a little bit more. And after that year... I had offers, you know, it started with BYU and then the Arizona schools jumped in and then Harvard, Stanford, USC. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like that one girl that nobody dated in junior high. And then all of a sudden she gets a little hot over the summer and one guy dates her and then everybody wants to date her, you know, (laughs) it's like, so all of a sudden out of nowhere, I was getting attention from everybody. And, you know, I was getting phone calls and, you know, 20 letters a day. And um, I committed to USC before my senior year. And um, what I didn't realize was that put a target on my back because all of a sudden everybody's like, okay, well, if I can beat this guy, then 
schools will give me a look because they're watching this guy already. And so, you know, you'd have three guys coming at you every play. And it wasn't until the last game of my senior year that the center on the other team um, was smart enough to realize that I was keying the center. And so, and he was the center. And so he just went the opposite way that they called a play and took me out of every play. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, my whole career and how I ended up at USC was I basically fell forward. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I got to USC that I really started learning um, about the game. And, you know, the, the best thing about being a part of team sports is there's, there's a camaraderie to it. And when you go through difficult times together, you know, and I learned more from a losing season than I ever did from a winning season. Um, you know, and then I ended up with a guy named Ed Ogeron, who's the head coach at LSU now. Um, and some people like this guy because, you know, he, he – played into some big wins at USC when he was an interim coach. Um, but he was probably one of the worst people I was ever around. Um, and he was one of those guys where uh, looking at the coach, when he, when he yelled at you, um, where he came from, that meant you want to fight him. You know, it's like that one dog where if you stare at him, he'll start growling at you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, that's, wow. and that's where he came from. Um, and, you know, he'd shut the door and challenge me to a fight. And um, there was times where the coaches had to, you know, pull them off of me at times. And uh, that player abuse does exist um, at this level still. Um, and, you know, some people just care about wins and they care about the W, and that's really all they care about. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think uh, I've, I've been a part of some great coaches like John Robinson and Pete Carroll. And, you know, these are leaders of men, and these are, um, you know, father figures to many people on the team, including myself. Um, but I've been a part of some guys that uh, I don't think should be around, um, you know, boys that are becoming and, men, so to speak. And, and I love the way you were able to differentiate that right there because within it you, you're going to have some folks in, you know, I think that's the, one of the problems with the coaching profession because you have this sort of kind of coaching nepotism, right? You're part of this, this tree, and no matter what you do, you know, you have the coaching blue wall, right? People get any folks right. get facilitated, but then you're able to, you, you have someone like a, a Robinson and a Carroll, and you start to see, you know, folks who really invest in, uh, invest in young people and men and, and develop them. If right. you were to describe. Building character. You know, yeah. J-Rob so was a guy that, uh, you know, he'd in the hallway. Yeah. Uh, I, I was, you know, John Robinson was this guy where I'd, I'd see him in the hallway and he'd, you know, he'd slip me 20 bucks and he'd be like, Hey Bob, you look hungry. You should get yourself something to eat. But then he'd pull you in close and he'd be, and he'd say, bring me back two chicken sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> so he was kind of this, uh, you know, guy. And it's funny cause I, I told that story in front of him and some of the older teammates one time and everyone was laughing. He was like, it, it was more like $5, right? I mean, here he is. He's retired for like 15 years, and he's still looking over his shoulder like the NCAA is going to find him for that, you know. Um, but, you know, he was one of those great leaders of men and, and you know, guys you wanted to be around, guys you'd want to jump on the grenade for. Um, and, and you know, somebody that you gravitate towards and, and somebody you want to be like. And uh, there are those coaches because coaches aren't just guys that draw up schemes. They're educators. Um, and, you know, going through – a losing period at SC, I saw a lot of coaches. So I saw a lot of people that were teachers and I saw a lot of people that uh, weren't such. 
So, so what was Pete Carroll like if if, if you were to compare? And I, I know he's totally he's different, right? So, what was Pete Carroll like? You know, Pete was one of those guys that he had a contagious enthusiasm that was genuine, and um, you know, the the guy in between John Robinson and Pete Carroll was a guy named Paul Hackett, and he would phone in a lot of phony. It was a lot of phony enthusiasm. It was a lot of gimmicks and a lot of uh, quotes on the board, you know. And the only place where work comes before success or success comes before work is in the dictionary. But he would attribute that to Vidal Sassoon, like the hair care products guy. So you kind of be like, oh, I don't know about this guy. Uh, but Pete Carroll was this guy that um, you could feel the energy behind him. And I, I knew he was going to be a great coach, even though we didn't have a winning season in his first year. I think we counted for like 80% of his career losses. But my favorite Pete Carroll story is uh, – we, it was raining. We had to go to the gym in February because, you know, you're just going to run your butt off, get back into shape after the season lull. And uh, he'd separate everybody into teams of three. And, um, it, you know, he had a round-robin three-on-three basketball tournament that was timed. And, you know, everybody got a good workout. And um, somehow, like, our backup running back, our starting tight end, and one of our defensive backs ended up on the same team. And they were all dominant. They could – do like windmill dunks and they just destroyed everyone and Pete came up and he said how about your guys against me and my guys and he walks up with Kennedy Pola and the offensive line coach who's over like you know both of them like 350 pounds and everyone's kind of laughing like oh this is going to be a moment of humility where he's going to show us that he can get defeated in front of us and that is not what happened he actually dominated these guys 11 to 2 uh, he was like six for seven from the three-point line, counting them as one. You know, they're running. I mean, you had these 350-pound guys running picks. Dudes were running to walls, getting knocked down. And uh, you know, it was, I, I don't know if you ever saw that movie Wildcats with Goldie Hawn, where she's like she outruns everybody, you know, until they all fall. And it's, it was basically that. It was like this Wildcat moment. And uh, that was kind of the first experience we had with Pete Carroll within the first month he was coaching there and uh we sat there and went holy crap I mean he'd be out there an hour before practice started you know throwing 50 yard balls out to the receivers you know what I mean some guy in his you know 50s just (laughs) throwing these long balls out there he was an athlete you know and he loved being out there and he made everyone else want to love being out there too he really brought my passion for the sport back wow so academically so what did you major in there at USC. So I was a I was a business major. Um, you know, I was my my top three were Harvard, Stanford, and USC, and I ultimately chose USC. Obviously, they had the best football program, um, and they were you know where I was from. But you couldn't study business as an undergrad at Harvard and Stanford, and I got into um, a business scholars program at USC so I could take business classes as a true freshman. And uh, I mean, my mentor when I was there was. Uh, the guy that's the dean of the business school now, a guy named Jim Ellis. Um, and so I was lucky to be a part of that program. And then I had a girlfriend who was in the film school, and because I was so busy with football all day, and she'd have film classes like at night from 7 to 10, after practice I would crash her classes. So I'd go to the Spielberg class, and I'd go to the Hitchcock class, and I was always a, you know, a, a film fan, but I'd never looked into the filmmaking process until that until that time period. And I sort of fell in love with it. And, you know, the athletic department told me I couldn't get into the film school because all the core classes were from fall on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I I went to the dean of the film school and I said, you know, can I 
take like the prerequisite, like Cinema 101, can I take that last so that I can actually get into the film school? And I applied to the film school and I got in. I think I'm, I was the only football player to ever get into the film school. Um, I don't know if there's been any others after me, but um, they were you know, happy to have me and they bent over backwards to make sure that they could find a way to make it fit into my schedule so that football didn't get in the way of something that I had a passion for. Um, and that really kind of what started um, my love for wanting to make movies. See, and that that right there, you describing that, it's one of the things I remember um, when we were having a panel discussion, and, and we got to a point where people were trying to figure out what to call student athletes or whatever. Because you know, uh, Chris, you know, Chris breaks down the history. Like Chris goes back and he starts, he starts breaking down the 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 the, the, uh, the legal. Uh, you know, so we started breaking out. So he said, someone said, what to call it? And, and I responded, undergraduates. And the reason why I said that is exactly what you just experienced. You know, a lot of times when we're talking about how we can engage athletes, a lot of the, the lens often goes to athletics, right? So the right. initial response, the initial response was coaches were like, we can't really do that because these classes are at the time of practice, which is actually a, a real barrier. Right, they got to practice right. some time. They got to to organize a practice time for everybody. But what never really happened, right. and I think it, it, it took your assertiveness, right? You it took your assertiveness to say, you know, uh, you know, is there a, a different way for me to to do this? They looked into it, and so the idea, the role that academic policy and the role that the faculty and other administrators play in terms of designing the curriculum and the exceptions to it. Are, are critical to helping us find solutions to allowing athletes to engage in the academic life of the college. And, and I would say it's not just athletes, it's veterans, it's, you know, first-generation low-income students who are working, it's, it's a whole set of other individuals. It's, uh, uh, con- you know, adult learners who come back who've got other issues are in this pool. So a lot of times people talk about just thinking about athletes, but there are a number of, of folks who have barriers to their schedules who we can we can begin to work with on. So I'm glad you I'm glad you talked about that because I think people often see the key to solution to something that athletics has to do. And I've often said right. athletics got they need to do, but also institutions, faculty, the way programs are designed also have to be designed in ways that accommodate not only athletes but other folks. So I'm glad you kind of walked through that because I think there's solutions there. Right, I, you know, and, and that therein lies the rub because at the end of the day, athletics drives so much at, at these universities, and it's not just ticket sales and revenue. It's it's the synergy and the intrinsic value that takes place across the fundraising level. It brings the alumni together. It's what you know ties you and tethers you to your school for the rest of your life. That doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And I don't use the word student athlete. I look at it like it's a racial slur. Um, mm-hmm. because, you know, it, 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 the history of it was because in 1957, a guy named Ray Dennison, um, you know, died from football and, um, the widow, you know, asked for workers' compensation and Walter Byers, who was, you know, the really the head of the NCAA and made it what it became today. Um, he said, no, they're not employees, they're student athletes. Um, and I feel that, you know, for the most part, especially at Division One level and even at Division Two and Three level, um, you know, you're really an athlete student. You know, sports comes first. You know, open up any program next time you go to a football and basketball game, okay, 
and you'll see a third of the guys will be undeclared, and that's somewhat reasonable. Um, and then you'll see a third of the guys in sociology, okay? Um, and, and I'm not knocking sociology because actually there's a lot of value in sociology, especially if you're going to be a teacher. Um, but they do that because it's actually at many institutions one of the easier majors. And they push people into that because they know that some of those professors will bend a little bit when it comes to scheduling and when it comes to grades. Um, you know, whereas if you're trying to be pre-med, um, you know what I mean, there, there's going to be a lot of blockades for the amount of work that you have to do. Um, and they want you to put that work in on the field and they don't want your time to suffer because for most of these coaches, they don't care about whether or not you're getting an education. It's not about an education to them. It's about eligibility. It's about keeping these guys on the field. Um, and so, you know, education takes a back seat to that and it happens all the time. You know, we have Rashad McCants and we cover the North Carolina scandal, um, in the film. And it's funny because, some people will be like, well, Rashad McCants, you know, probably, you know, would be able to handle all those classes. Rashad McCants was like the scholar athlete. You know, he was he was one of those guys that was one of the top students um, at the school he came from. He was pushed in, into that role um, as being an athlete first when he got to North Carolina. Um, now, did he have some responsibility in that? Yeah, there's, there's debate to that. Um, would most people stop when – um, you know, the advisors in the athletic department say you can't study film. Most would, yeah, most would probably stop at that point. Um, you know, whereas I kind of kept asking questions a little bit. And, um, you know, I had already been put into a role that was like, oh, this guy's never going to play. So I figured I wasn't really risking anything at that point. Um, you know, it wasn't until that coach, you know, Paul Hackett came in and told me that I would never play um, while he was there at the end of my freshman year. Um, you know, he didn't care that I had the highest GPA on the team. He didn't care what value I brought to the team. Um, you know, he'd only seen me in spring ball after they had moved me from linebacker to defensive line for three weeks. Um, and, you know, he flat out told me to my face that I wouldn't play as long as he was there. And he, he stayed true to his word on that. Uh, you know, even when I had proved myself um, again and again, uh, he did stick to that. Um, it wasn't until Pete Carroll that I actually got to start uh, for USC. He was one of those guys where the best man plays um, and was, was objective about who his players were. But here was a head coach that didn't care about my academic integrity. He just assumed that I was another player that wanted to play football at any cost and that I would automatically transfer because um, the reason why he said that to me, why Paul Haggis said that to me, was so he could get another scholarship. If I leave on my own volition, he gets another scholarship. Whereas if I have success, the previous coach gets a little bit of that credit. So it was a political move. I didn't understand it at the time. I understand it now. Um, you know, I still, you know, the, the, and a lot of coaches did that over the years, and a lot of coaches still do that. Um, and I think that's deplorable, you know. I think, you know, when you become a coach, you you are an educator to a certain degree, and you're, part of your job is to make sure that these guys get an education. And most of them, they only think about, where their next check's coming from. And that has to do with, you know, putting W's on the board and, you know, not putting diploma hats on these kids. So this getting us right in to, to, to the project. So I'd love you to hit on, you know, how this evolved, you know, um, you know, how you grew as a filmmaker, as a result of and like, and, and what, like, what were your takeaways from this experience, and I know you have, uh, you know, I think it was very, per I know it was very personal for you, uh, but just maybe just talk about this project and, and just, 
you know, as you reflect back on it and start to see it catch on and people watch it, you know, kind of kind of help walk us through that experience. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, you know, when I graduated college, um, you know, I partnered with a film company, and um, you know, I was a part of a film called Talk to Me, um, which was a true story about a ex-convict that became a radio DJ in DC named Petey Green that Don Cheadle played. Um, we had, you know, Chuta Jafar and Taraji Henson, and uh, it's a great film if you want to check it out. And uh, I did a documentary um, about Petey Green that we uh, sold to PBS that Don Cheadle narrated, and that was kind of my first foray into into the documentary world. And right about that time, um, Scott Ross, was, who was a good friend of um, my roommate, Scott Ross was this legendary linebacker at SC. He, he was an All-American. He was a linebacker next to Junior Seau at USC. And um, I didn't know that my roommate was talking about Scott Ross. He just said, hey, can my friend crash on the couch for, you know, a week, you know, while he gets settled, you know, he's having a little um, trouble in his life. And I said, sure, no problem, man. And, um, you know, that little while turned into seven months. And um, Scott Ross, you know, had just lost his job, and uh, his life was spiraling out of control. He'd been diagnosed with dementia at the age of 39, and that was the first time that I started really thinking about the long-term mental health that these guys are putting at risk. And I started thinking about it myself because, you know, my five years of football at SC, because I was expendable for three years of them, um, you know, I'd go 70 plays in a row in scrimmages. You know, there'd be practices where I was never off the field. And, you know, I played five years extra. <laughs> you know, I played 10 years with football in those five years. And I started thinking, well, how did I put myself at risk? And um, I started really doing a lot of research and reading the books. And, you know, Walter Bars, the guy I was mentioned before, that, um, you know, created, made the NCAA what they were to this day. When, when TV contracts, you know, started becoming a big deal in the 50s, um, you know, he really started making sure that the commodities that were these athletes were under control by the NCAA. And um, he then later on wrote a book called Enforcement-like Conduct that, you know, he turned heel against the NCAA and called it a modern-day plantation. You know, that basically said these black bodies were, you know, making money for the universities. And mm-hmm. um, I read that book. I read another book um, uh, called Athletes for Hire. Um, by Warren Sack and Ellen Starosky, who's uh, now a close friend of mine. And I just started doing a lot of research. And, look, at the time, after the documentary, you know, our, the company I was with hit a dead period. And um, it, I'll tell you what, it's really hard to get a film made. <laughs> and uh, the circumstances that have to align to capture lightning in a bottle, so to speak, are very difficult. And I had kind of come to a crossroads with my partners and I left the company and I decided I was, I was tired of waiting for a film to get made. So I said, you know, I'm going to go make something that I care about and something that I have access to and something I have a lot of knowledge about. Um, so I started uh, a fundraising campaign on Kickstarter for uh, the documentary and to kind of put in perspective, the, the documentary that, that I sold to PBS was had a budget of $150,000 and uh, we shot five days in one city. And, um, you know, I raised $30,000 on Kickstarter for the business of amateurs. And we shot 77 days in 23 cities. Um, wow. And, you know, and then I and then I self-financed um, the post-production side, which is, um, you know, one of the more expensive parts. It's just, you know, there's sound production and there's um, color correction and there's there's legal things and there's, you know, insurance and there's things that people – 
um, you know, usually uh, underestimate all the costs that actually go into making a film so you can actually have it distributed and have it put out. Um, and so when we set out to make the film, I was really focused on the money side. And when I went to Texas and I interviewed Scott Ross, and the next week I went to Boston, and when you watch the film, the third act, you know, 25, you know, the 89 minutes of the film, we shot one weekend in Boston. Um, you know, wow. the widow of the guy that died at ALS, um, Chris Nowinski, um, and Dr. Robert Cantu, who um, were co-founders of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, uh, Dr. Ann McKee, the first doctor that got the NFL to admit a link between CTE and concussions in football. Um, and, and they hadn't done all that when we started talking to them. I was surprised they were talking to me. Um, you know, uh, like Ramogi. Wow. Ramogi was the first person I interviewed. Nobody was talking to Ramogi at that time. And um, I was just cold calling all of these people. And uh, I was lucky enough that they took me seriously and uh, that they gave me the time. And when we got back from Boston, you know, shortly after we had covered Scott Ross, um, you know, and saw kind of the heroin aspect that he brought to the table with his story and his testimonial, we, you know, I looked at my producers and my, which were my editor and my cinematographer. Um, I said, all right, this is, this is not about the money as much as this is about rights. This is about the things that are inarguable. Um, you know, we talk about the money to show the disparity and the gap that exists between, um, you know, where the money goes and who has the money and what the players don't have access to. Um, and to kind of show what that gap that exists and how 80% of these athletes are below the poverty line. Um, but, you know, academic integrity um, that we've seen, um, you know, institutions have fallen short on because they care more about the exposure that sports brings to the school and what winning means and what that means in order to have a team win means education has to take a back seat. And then the medical side, you know, and not just – you know, I just had knee surgery on my knee last year from a football injury. I'm going to have to have one on my right. And, you know, I have shoulder and back and neck problems. And a lot of people will say, oh, you know, you signed up for those injuries. And, you know, I can I can understand that argument to a certain degree. Um, you know, guys say, you know, I would give up my shoulder and my neck and my back to be able to run out of the tunnel like you did, which is a very fleeting moment. It's a very romanticized moment. It's actually how we start the film. Um, but I don't think that, I signed up for giving up my long-term mental health um, for those moments of glory. And if I had a choice to do it again, uh, I wouldn't, As and most people don't believe me. But, you know, I have a daughter now, and, um, you know, I, I do have long-term mental issues from playing football. Um, and I pray that they're not the tip of a larger iceberg that, um, you know, keeps me from playing the father role that I want to play in her life. I appreciate you sharing that as as well. Um, there, there are times that I even think about it. You know, uh, my my uh, football experience, and you know, in 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 just some of the episodes I might have, and um, you know, you can't really tell those micro moments. Um, you know, where you, you're not you're forgetting or you're trying to remember, and and so it's it's one of those things where, uh, and you think about the impact it has on being able to walk someone down the aisle. Um, and, you know, right. would you do it? And um, the empowerment that comes, <clears throat> I think that's why I think the education component is so important because it's, it, part of it is knowing you can do something else, which I think is a really uh, important part of it uh, with a group of folks. Um, 
Because when I experience, when I talk to student athletes who are in some Olympic sports and, 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 and associated with a higher social economic strata, the way in which they talk about their experience is different. And the way right. in which they see what they can do is different. Even when you have folks who can actually go to the Olympics, they, they just they, they, they experience in the way in which they understand options and the way in which they leverage that network they're in is a totally different experience than what we see in some of the revenue sports like basketball and football, where you have a mostly first-generation low-income students coming from space where the social capital and how to navigate these things and, and knowing what you can do and can't do aren't there. And so when you look at the complexity of this, if you had like one or two things, one of the things I, was, I appreciate in our panel, you, you were talking about this element of competition. How do you leverage what makes sports work as part of the solution. Can you talk a little bit about just from this, some of the things you think are possible opportunities to, to maybe start to shift this? Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in my research, there's really, you know, four things that seem to be, you know, on the cusp of something that could change it. You know, we cover the unionizing effort that took place that, that, that took place at Northwestern. And that's really um, on a school-by-school basis and really only through private schools. And some states have already created legislation to prevent athletes from being able to unionize, and they've already done preemptive strikes against that. Uh, Then there's litigation. So we're seeing all these different concussion lawsuits that are coming into play that are trying to change things. And, um, you know, what we've seen is these class action lawsuits haven't really done anything. It's really kind of lawyers going after their 40% money grab. Um, Then there's legislation, you know, the, you know, Fed, you know, federal government could step in at some point. Um, you know, right now the NCAA is lobbying for antitrust exemption, which would be a terrible thing because uh, it would really prevent athletes from ever having a voice. Um, and then there's competition, and competition is probably the fastest way to do it. Um, if a school had the guts to step up and start using some of their revenue to be put into fund for injured athletes, you know, take some of that Nike and Under Armour money, you know, you don't even have to take it from the coaches, um, or, or did a system that created academic integrity. Um, you know, we would, we would start to see schools competing for that. Um, but I don't think the schools want to do anything medically because they don't want to admit that their cash cow is putting these young guys long-term mental health at risk. Um, it's kind of the same reason big tobacco you know, didn't want to say that their product was killing people and that it was an addictive because it went against their own self-interest. Um, you know, was, I think it was Upton Sinclair or something, you know, along the lines that said you can't, you know, count on somebody to tell the truth when their livelihood depends on them not telling the truth. And so that's that, that's that catch-22 that exists and why no schools really cross that barrier when the reality is when you're in that living room and you're being recruited and the coach comes into your room and the parents just say, is he going to get an education? And if he gets hurt, are you going to take care of him? They're really empty promises. Um, and, and those are the things that people really want. A lot of times people think the unionizing effort is about getting a salary and it's not really about that. It's about the rights that most people assume are in place that actually aren't in place. But, you know, I think actually the fastest way to change everything um, would come from the black athletes. You know, I mean, you said, you know, lower socioeconomic background. I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to say it's black athletes because that's what it is. Nobody likes to talk about race. I mean, I'm a white guy. I'm not a black guy. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, my teammates were, um, 
my brothers, whether they were black or white or whatever, we went through all these things together. Um, so I got to kind of see firsthand where these guys came from. And, um, you know, people want to say, well, well, this guy's just going to blow his money on rims or, you know, I've seen them with their new shoes and their scooters. And, um, you know, I got in a big online fight not too long ago. And I said, you know, if Jordan Spieth was on a new scooter, you probably wouldn't say anything. It kind of implied <laughs> that it was about race, you know. But I'm like, you know, that guy on that scooter, he doesn't have a car. That actually is his mode of transportation. Um, you know, I know guys that sent money back to their families. You know, you, your rent would be, you'd be sharing a, you know, a bedroom in a place, and you know, you'd pare it down so you don't have to pay three hundred dollars rent, so you could take two or three hundred dollars of that um, stipend and send it home. Um, and you know, you look at these Olympic athletes. I mean, you're making a great point, with the exception of track. Um, these are mostly white kids that come from upper to middle upper class backgrounds. And, you know, why are there, why aren't there as many black people in volleyball and water polo and soccer? Because they're club sports. It costs tens of thousands of dollars a year just to be in a year round sport that you can get recruited in. Um, nobody wants to talk about that. Um, you know, some people say, oh, well, you know, now that we know everything about CTE, isn't football going to start to die down? Uh, no, the demand gets stronger every year for it. It's not going anywhere. You're just going to see more black athletes because when you come from a lower socioeconomic background, um, and you can look in the history of why that exists, and there's a lot of factors. I'm not going to get into that. Um, but when you come from that type of background um, and and the risk of putting that out there versus the reward of, jumping um, multiple socioeconomic levels and being able to take your family with you, the risk becomes worth it. Um, so I think if, you know, for the guys that are out there that are becoming educated and enlightened on the power that they do have, like we saw in Missouri where the football team striked because the school president wasn't doing anything um, about some of the racial things that were happening on campus, and what happened? The guy had to resign in two days. Okay, these guys have a lot of power, and they don't realize it. And at some point, I think they will realize it, and I think that's where the change is going to come from. You know, I mean, if if you had five guys on, you know, the the starters on a basketball team, um, just choose not to show up to the finals, um, and yeah, they'd take a lot of heat for it. Okay, and the fans would be really pissed off about it. Um, you're going to remember them more than you'll remember. I mean, tell me who won the 2003 national championship in either sport. You know, I bet you can't tell me. I can tell you football because yeah, USC, I think, was a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, and, 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 you know, one thing I love won't make about history. Is, that's right. And, and, you know, that's why we remember the Fab Five, because I think they made some of those political statements. And They almost did. Yeah, they were close. They came, they came close with it. And, and, and so, you know, one thing, this has been great, and, um, one thing I want to give you, we used to have a drop the mic segment. So this is where you listen to uh, the real sports guys. Uh, this is our one mic. Yeah, we go deep. Uh, we're, we're we're here with uh, film director uh, uh, Bob DeMars, who uh, has this great and incredible documentary, uh, The Business of Amateurs. you got to see it. Um, uh, we have this segment in the, on, the, on, on the one mic. It's called Drop the Mic. And usually myself or my partner, Hank, will do it. But as the guest, we, we want to give you kind of, uh, you know, about a minute, just kind of drop your final thoughts uh, uh, on this topic and and uh, also share where they can get the, they can follow you and 
um, where they can, you know, get access to the documentary uh, as part of it uh, as, as, we, as we close out. And then we also want to invite you back. I think we just hit the tip of the iceberg with this, um, and uh, I wanted people to, to hear about what you're doing, but I'd love to, to, to invite you back to dig deeper, particularly into the intersection between race and this issue, because I know that's your next thing that you really like to get into. And I want to I do a conversation, uh, get a little bit deeper around, around that area, uh, because we have to address that to even get to some of the solutions. So I want to give you, you know, about a minute to drop the mic, kind of wrap it up, and then let folks know where they can, where they can, uh, where they can find you. Okay, great. Um, you know, the first thing, you know, the thing about you got to understand about the business of amateurs, this is about the things that are inarguable, okay? Um, you know, we do talk about the money. I think guys should make money off of their likeness. You know, we live in a capitalistic society, and the NCAA has kind of created this fairy tale that people want to believe in um, where you can't get your fair market value. And, um, you know, I think that would solve a lot of the problems when it comes to these guys that are coming from poverty um, and allow them to actually trade on their name and their value. Um, I do think there needs to be some a academic integrity put in place and some guidelines for universities to follow. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of guys that are just bashing their head into the wall because their coach says they need to and they're hitting in practice every single day. Um, there's a lot of simple, no-cost solutions, and uh, we offer them in the film um, that schools can take that would minimize some of these long-term damage. You know, um, you know, football's not going anywhere. And I think one of the biggest points that's made in the film, because when I was making the film, I think the hardest thing for me to reconcile was, you know, I still love – I'm proud that I'm a Trojan. You know, I'm proud of, you know, the camaraderie that I had with my teammates. I'm proud of the things that I struggled through. And how do I reconcile that ambivalence and mixed emotions with all of these difficult topics that we're covering in the film? And the only way that I knew how to even address that was to ask every athlete um, who provided testimonials in the film, how do you feel about your school? And every single one of them said, you know, I love my school. And it was a rower from Berkeley, Kirsten Hextrom, in the film. I've said it a million times after uh, she said it. Um, she said, you know, this is what we do with things that we love and things that we care about is we push them to be better. So you can be an athlete and still want more from your school and push your school to do better. You can be a fan and still follow your team and love your team and, and still push for your school um, to make some changes that – um, are for the betterment and the welfare of these athletes that are putting their bodies and their long-term mental health at risk. Um, so please check out the film. You can see it. Um, it's on iTunes. Um, if you have Amazon Prime right now, you can stream it for free. If you have Hulu, I think you can stream it for free as well. Um, you know, it's on Vudu. It's on PlayStation. It's on Google Play. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Bobby Demars. There's no dot com. It's just at Bobby Demars. And uh, you can follow the documentary. Um, at NCAA documentary, um, but give it a look and try to be objective. And uh, you know, if you have any feedback, we'd love to hear from you.